0: Ahead is the full recording of a sermon and worship service at New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church in East Toledo, Ohio. We hope that you've chosen to listen to it because you believe that the Lord may speak to you through the sermon, through the message, and you want to have fellowship with God's people in this uh, technology-based way. We hope that as you listen, you will grow to new heights in Jesus. Thank you and God bless.
1: Before we go anywhere or do anything, there's two pieces of business that I need to take care of before you. Two errors that the Lord brought to my attention in things that I have said in the last month or so. And I feel like sometimes I am used, praise God, as a mouthpiece for God. The first one was at the block party and then also on my Sunday on sermon, I quoted uh, a verse, or two verses actually, from Ephesians 2. And I quoted them as Ephesians 2, 9, and 10. And it was later brought to my attention that it's actually Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. 10 is where it says, we are his workmanship, is the last verse in that passage, and 2, 8, and 9, are by grace are you saved. And that's so, I was quoting it and saying it was 9 and 10, but actually it was 2, 8, and 9. So clarify that, that's covered. So If you look it up in your Bible, you'll find it in 2, 8, and 9, not 2, 9, and 10, like I said. The second thing was, and this one maybe was even more important to me because no, I don't think anybody caught it, and I didn't catch it at the time, but in the last two weeks I have managed to uh, get the podcasts of our service, of the, of the message, and, and some of the music up on Podcast Garden and on our church website. And as I was listening to the sermon, lo and behold, as I was looking through it and finding out, because uh, a lot of times like if there's an, Ill, an object lesson that I do, I'll take that out because you can't really understand when you're just listening to it. If you, unless you were there, you don't understand what was happening. So we did a game that day. And I took that out, and then I was listening to the rest of the sermon and see if there was anything that people just couldn't really understand that needed to be taken out before I put the podcast up online. And I listened to myself, quote Matthew twenty three twenty three, where he calls uh, those Jewish leaders who had come to him questioning him. And he calls them hypocrites, and he talks. And it's the verse where it says, "Because you tithe on the uh, mint and yeast and cumin or whatever those three uh, uh, herbs are, there there." And he says. Uh, but you leave undone the weightier matters of the law which are like mercy kindness and so on what you should have done was done one and not left the other undone okay when i quoted the verse in my sermon i said you should have done the one and not left and and not done the other or not left the other done i forget exactly what it was but the point is i didn't i wasn't i didn't say it correctly and so when, when you quote scripture you want to get it right and so i would read it right off the page Uh, but I don't read as well as I used to because my eyes are not what they used to be, even with my little reading glass, so eventually I'll wear glasses. I know that, or the Lord will heal me, one or the other. But uh, the point is, I misquoted Matthew 23, 23. So let me encourage you. That is an object lesson in two ways, and then we're going to jump into the text. The first way is, my job, I believe, I've been called... Uh, to preach the word, to be the pastor and do the ministry that I do here at the Life Station and, and all told, with the writing and everything that I do all told and, and maybe more importantly than that would be to be a leader in my family a servant and a leader and then certainly even more important than that would be to be a follower of Jesus and that's number one so I do the best I can but I'm going to make mistakes so you need to be in your Bible you need to be reading, you need to be praying you need to be first and foremost a follower of Jesus please never become a follower of me because that will, you know, if I go wrong, you'll go wrong, and that would be a huge mistake. Okay. So that being said, I encourage you to be reading in your Bibles, and that's the first part of the point. And then the second point is, if I made two, I can almost guarantee you there were more than two, and we don't even know what they were. And so, uh, God is the one that's in charge, right? So God knew what was said, and, and maybe you all heard when I said and leave the other, uh, not done or whatever. I didn't say it correctly. Maybe you all heard it correctly. And you knew the verse already, and so it was no problem. But I just want to encourage you to be in the word and in touch with the Lord so that when I make mistakes, you will still be in line with Jesus. All right, now on to what we're talking about. So the topic of the sermon is how to betray your king and your people. And it comes from a kind of an odd angle. We've been working through the book of Joshua. And I remind you that the book of Joshua, uh, this name Joshua, was named after a man named Hosea, son of Nun, whom Moses called Joshua. And I've been reminding you that. I probably will for weeks to come. Because it's hugely important. And the word Joshua comes to us over from and, through the, uh, from and through the Hebrew. But if you took it through the Greek, you would get the word Jesus. So it means God saves or Yahweh saves. All right. So Joshua's name means Yahweh saves. And so as we look at the book, we know Joshua is not Jesus. But his life is a story, in a sense, about how God saves which really ties into this passage that we're going to do today, because even though we're going to learn how to betray your king and your people, that is not necessarily, if you're with the right king and the right people, then that's not what you're supposed to do. But clearly if you're with the wrong king and the wrong people as the harlot Rahab is in this story, then betraying them, in a sense, is exactly what you're supposed to do. Okay, And so this really becomes a story of redemption, which is what really makes it neat, because as Brother Tony pointed out, the bulletin was laid out around along that theme the songs are laid out along that theme and the inspirational reading was laid out along that theme even though there's no way that all could have come together if god didn't do it so god clearly wants to talk to us about redemption today actually the, the song that michael brought and read to us fit perfectly in there too so everything we talked about everything that's been in the service so far god clearly wants to talk about redemption today. Um, and we're going to see that in this sermon entitled, How to Betray Your King and Your People. Have you ever been in a situation where you knew how to do what you needed to do but you just couldn't get it done? Have you ever tried to change an automotive part or you're baking something in the kitchen or you're fixing something, a piece of plumbing or whatever? You know the steps, Right? This is how you make that come off there. This is how you put the new part on. You know the steps, but you just can't seem to get it done. Well, that happens. It's it's not that it never happens. It happens sometimes. But what happens a lot more often than that is not knowing how to do what it is that you're trying to do. So, for example, if somebody said to me, well, you need to change the alternator on your car. Your alternator is bad. I might could figure out, I could, my steps would include consult, consulting someone to figure out how you change an alternator or paying someone to change an alternator or looking it up on like ehow steps to changing an alternator or watching a YouTube video how to change an alternator. So my pattern would have to include that because I don't know how to change an alternator or a lot of things, right? And newer cars, uh, the newer it's like they keep remaking, reinventing the car sort of in a way and so Some things are, like, what I I can actually clean a carburetor. I can mostly rebuild a carburetor, but nothing has a carburetor anymore. So that's a useless skill, just about, unless you get into certain, like, um, maybe like a mower or something like that that might still have a carburetor. Or a really old car. So the point is, new patterns then have to be learned on how to do the thing that you have to try to do. Right? You want to make something in the kitchen that's brand new, you have to learn a a new pattern. You don't have to know the recipe necessarily word for word, and some people like Carrie, for example, or people who have done a lot of cooking, might, they might be able to kind of almost do those things and say, well, you'd need a pinch of that, and you'd need a teaspoon of that, right? Because they've so learned the patterns, so many different patterns, that they can put the patterns together, right? People can do that in the kitchen. And mechanics are like that, too. They might not have ever changed this particular part, but they know the patterns enough that they can go, well, we get in there and we kind of start taking it off, we'll see what's in the way. And I can't do that. So what I'm saying to you is, as we look at this text today, and we look at the pattern of how to betray your king and your family, realize if you don't know this pattern, then doing it would be difficult. If you do know this pattern, then doing it is going to be fairly easy. And I I say to you in advance, not to kind of ruin the end of the story, but there is a time to do it and a time not to do it. And so, knowing the pattern, for example, if I know how to take an alternator off my car, when I walk up to get in my car, if I don't want to take my alternator off, I just don't do it. And lo and behold, it doesn't come off. It doesn't fall off by itself. It's bolted on there. It just stays in there. And hopefully it just does its job. And everybody's happy. But because I know how to take an alternator off, I can decide not to take an alternator off. Or if I know how to bake a cake, I can decide not to bake a cake. So knowing the pattern allows you the choice of whether or not to enact the pattern, and if you want to do it, then you know how to do it, and you know the steps to beginning to take. Okay, it's a relatively short passage of scripture, and I know I could have went right into more of the story, and I, you know, some of the New Testament authors would have, I think, would have done that, but I just think that God wanted us to see these verses. All right, so we're in uh, Joshua chapter two, beginning in verse one. Woo! Thank you so much, Joshua Mitchell. Are you ready for Joshua chapter two, verse one? Can I get an amen? Amen. All right, thank you very much. Joshua has to be ready for this book for sure, right? Okay. I have to get there because I turned to the wrong book real quick. All right, Joshua chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 says, Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. Okay, so first of all, in this first verse, we see Joshua doing sort of the same thing that Moses did when Joshua was first sent in, right? Now, it's different in that Moses sent the spies, a dozen of them, not just two, but a dozen of them to survey the whole land. And Joshua is telling them to look especially at Jericho. So he realizes that Jericho is going to be a big pivotal point in taking a huge section of the promised land and he's thinking somewhat militaristically. So he sends in two spies. I think it's interesting because uh, Moses was following a sort of a tradition or a pattern. Send 12, there are 12 tribes, right? So he, was, he sent 12 because that seems like the right number. Now you got Joshua sending two, just two men, which is interesting because how many of the tribes came back or how many of the spies came back last time and said, hey, let's go do it? Two. So the pattern has adjusted from 12 spies to two spies. I don't know why, but it's different than the first time. And they're focused on Jericho. And then they wind up in the house of a harlot. So if you just took this verse right here, it doesn't sound like it's going very well. Right? They went into the land, and they're spying everything out, and they wind up in the house of a harlot, which is a prostitute. Someone who's sex for money or resources. Okay? And they wind up lodging there. Now, why there? Other than the providence of God, of course. But why there? It doesn't tell us why they went into the house of a harlot. Obviously, you can pay a harlot to to be quiet. So there's a possibility. Um, Maybe they were there for illicit reasons, but I doubt it. It doesn't seem like that was their purpose. Uh, We certainly don't have that in the story. So there they are, staying in the house of Rahab. The prostitute. Verse 2. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. So they knew the, the king was told that two men had come to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entr- entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. Okay. So something happened in there that's not recorded in the story, right? The spies are the anti-spies, if you will. The counter-espionage unit comes to the king and says, um, two guys came in, and we don't get that, they, that the counter-espionage unit said, and they're staying at the house of Rahab. We don't get that in the story. They may have, and they may have come from Rahab's house. Somehow, the king now knows to send this message to Rahab's house. So some part of the story is not given. so we don't know exactly how we got to the point of the king sending a message to Rahab but it's clear that he's pretty abreast of what's going on inside his city he has a pretty good knowledge of what people are doing somehow because when they say two men have come he sends his people with a message to Rahab so she's not the only harlot in town Jericho is not a small town there are at least tens of thousands of people there right now we have every reason to believe that people were leaving. There were quite a few people that had left Jericho already um, under the imminent threat of the coming of the Israelites. Uh, But again, that's not in the story. All we know is that they came and they said, hey, two men have come into the land to spy out the land. And the king sends a message to Rahab saying, those two guys, so somehow he finds out they're at her house, have come to search out all the land. Verse 4. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. Okay, So notice that she t- she's taken some steps. The king sends his messengers to her house and says, hey, you have some people in your house, that's my best understanding, is that you have some people in your house who have come to spy out the land. They have come to work against us. They are spies for the enemy. Okay, They are not on your side. They are not on my side. They are, quote-unquote, bad Okay? Give them over. We'll deal with them. And it doesn't say they're going to kill them. Right? They might have been trying to, they might be going to try to negotiate or who knows, but they, they, we want them because they're spies. Turn them over. Notice that when the messengers come, she has already prepared for this eventuality. She's recognized in herself that there are going to be people in the kingdom, the king and the king's representatives, the counter-espionage unit, if you will, that are going to be very interested in what these two men are up to. It does not say in the story that they told her, previous to the king's messenger coming and telling her, that they were from the army of the Israelites, that they had come from from Joshua, or that they had come to spy out the land. Maybe they had given notice in some way of what they were up to. Maybe they hadn't. We don't know for a fact. But now the counter-espionage unit, if you will, the men who bring the message from the king have informed her that the two men that came to her house are from the Israelites and they come to spy out the land. So by now she knows that they are from the enemy. Whether she figured that out before on her own or whether they informed her, at a certain point she became aware that they are from the enemy of her people, the enemy of her king. Okay, And she's already hidden them. So she, whether she figured it out before this message or after, she's already hidden them. It inclines us to believe that she probably figured it out before the messenger shows up because she's already hidden them. But obviously they are interested in being extremely discreet and she could tell that and somehow or other she's already hidden them before the message comes. And then it says that she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. So she absolves herself of knowing that they are from the Israelite arm. Now, you could say, well, that means she didn't know, but we already know by what happens later in the story that she's a liar, okay? And she's pretty good at it. So she could be lying here too, so we don't know whether she knew for sure where they were from or not. But we know that she knew that they were hiding out, that they were being discreet, because she hid them. So we know that she knew people would want to see them, that they didn't want to be seen, and that she had hidden them. And she says, I didn't know where they had come from. Absolving herself of any guilt or connection with these men... In the face of the counter espionage unit, if you will, in the face of the king and the king's army. Verse 5. And it came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Okay, now we know that that's all a lie, right? So the time is getting close for the gate to be shut. It hasn't actually been shut yet. And she says at the time when they knew the time was coming close for the gate to be shut and they wouldn't be able to go in and out anymore, they left, which is a lie because she's got them hidden. I do not know where the men went. That's a lie because she's got them hidden at her house. Okay? She says, pursue them quickly. Go after them out there because They left so she gives them direction based on her lies she gives them direction look at that over there go that way she says for you will overtake them you will find them before they get too far away is what she's saying but she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax which she had laid in order on the roof so these long stalks of flax and she's hidden them there so she's got them hidden in the stalks of flax on her roof the whole time she's lying and telling the men, go hurry and get them. They just left right before the gate was going to close. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the Fords. And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. So the men they are pursuing are hiding in the stocks on Rahab's roof. She's told lies and then based on her lies, she's urged them to go pursue the men. And they go out and they follow the road, the beaten path, if you will, the comfortable way to follow the men, assuming that the men have gone the comfortable way to the fords of the Jordan to go back to make their report. Follow all of that? Okay. And that's where the text actually stops for today. And I know the story is just getting good, and it's getting exciting, and we're, you know, but some of you already know what happens. So that's okay. All right, so first of all, see what she did. Okay? Because it, we're looking at the pattern that she used to betray her king and her people. So the first thing she did was she talked to or had connection with the enemy. So even though she was a citizen and she had not flown flown from Jericho in the face of the coming army and her family is theoretically still living there, right? even though all that's true, when the enemy comes in, she has them come into her house. She has a connection with them. It's a social connection. And it could be just because she's a harlot and she's they're going to maybe utilize her services or whatever, but very quickly she realizes that she has to take additional steps. So she actually invites the enemy into her home, and then she associates with them secretly. She covers up her association. So she says, no, they were here, but I didn't know where they were from. She covers up her association with them. And then she overtly lies to protect the enemy. So covering up her association is one thing. You could even say, when, that because they were Israelites and they came from Shittim, from Joshua, maybe, maybe she knew that, but probably she didn't. So she didn't know necessarily where Joshua was at. She didn't necessarily know where the army was at. So when she said, well, I didn't know where they came from, that's only sort of a lie, mostly a lie. Right? it's a subtle covering up of her connection with them Okay, yeah, I saw them, I had them in my house I fed them, I did unintentionally help the enemy along but I didn't really know where they were from and so she's really making an excuse about how what she's done is not wrong that's just covering up her association but then she outright lies to protect the enemy, saying that they're gone, she hides the enemy and then says that they're gone She actually takes steps to help the enemy avoid detection. If they had searched the house, they might or might not have found them in the flax on the roof. Right? They might or might not have searched the roof. And if they searched the roof, they were concealed inside the flax, so maybe they wouldn't have seen them. And then, she's going to go on, in the next passage, beginning 8, she's going to go on to barter with the enemy and talk to the enemy and try to get some positive Results out of what she's doing. She desires something and she's going to seek to benefit by her association with the enemy. By that time, by the time she barters for something valuable and seeks to benefit by her association with the enemy, she has already long betrayed her king and her people. That's why we don't need to go there yet because the pattern is up to verse 7. She talks to the enemy. She invites the enemy in. She associates secretly with them and then covers up her association with the enemy. She lies to protect the enemy and, or, or she finds a way to help the enemy escape detection. Okay? That's what she did. All right, now, as we look at the process, I want you to see three things about the process. The first thing I want you to see is it's progressive. One step follows on the other. If you don't talk to the enemy, if you have nothing to do with the enemy, then you can't invite the enemy in. Right? so if Michael came to my house and he knocked on my door and I just never go to the door he may come in because he's my friend, and my brother in Christ and he may feel like he needs to or he may like, I wonder if everybody's okay he may come and check on me or whatever Right. but I didn't invite him in so I have not started the process Then, if he comes in and he finds me sitting in my living room and I didn't come to the door and he says, hey, how's it going to be come to the door, is everything okay and I say, yeah, everything's okay, I just didn't want to see you Okay. There's no association, right? So it's progressive. One step follows on the previous step. And each step makes the next step easier. You first talk with the enemy, tarry a little while, think about the possibilities, and then you invite the enemy to come in. Yeah, I think this will work. This will be good. And so as each step makes the next easier, it also makes the next more likely to happen, right? So if you want to go with me to the New Testament, we're going to look just very briefly at a couple of verses. The first one is in the book of James, chapter 1. The book of James, chapter 1. I didn't mark it. James, chapter 1. And it's verses 14 and 15. Now, of course, this is James probably the brother of Jesus, and he's talking about Christian living. And the book is largely about works arising out of faith. So faith should have its results in your life and a, and a number of what those results should be and so on. Okay. In chapter 1, in verse 14, James writes this. But each one, that's everybody, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust then when lust has conceived it gives birth to sin and when sin is accomplished it brings forth death And so this is the latter end of the process but you can see the process pictured here we want it the enemy comes and sort of offers it dangles it makes you think you can get it without any negative effect and you go okay yeah you want to give me some free money or you want to give me some free good feelings or some free whatever yeah okay I'll let you give me that Right? With no strings attached, I'll let you give me that. But then there are strings attached. And you let, him, let the enemy give you that or bring that into your life. You invite the enemy in. And you wanna, and then you go, wait, no. I, I'm not associated with you. I wanna, I'm going to disassociate myself. And so the counter espionage unit shows up. Somebody that loves you shows up and says, hey, I don't think that thing is a good thing that you're doing. And you say, oh, no, 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 it's not like that. I'm not doing that. Or I'm not allowing that. I don't have any relationship with Satan. I don't have anything to do with evil spirits or any sin whatsoever. No, no, it's not like that. That's not what happened. But in truth, it's exactly what happened. You allowed and invited in something that the enemy wanted to do, thinking you were going to get some benefit out of it in the long run without shutting it down before. You talked with him. You negotiated. And then you invited. And now you're trying to disassociate yourself with him. But notice that that's just the next step in the process. You talk with him, invite him, you associate yourself, but then cover up your association. And the next step is you lie to protect the enemy. Because if you really aren't associated with him, then the quote unquote free stuff that you associated with him to get, when you disassociate yourself, what's going to happen to the free stuff? The flow stops. Right, And so you go, no, 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 it's not like that to your friend or to your loved one who is trying to correct you, trying to teach you. Or maybe you're more like this, don't talk to me like that. Who are you to tell me? Right. You have all these problems in your life. What, whatever method you use, you disassociate yourself with the enemy, but then you turn right around and go back to association with him, which makes what you just did a lie. So now you're one step deeper into the process and you're pretty much there. You, you have initiated continued, and even concrete cemented down your relationship with this enemy, whatever it is, in the life, despite the fact that it's not what your king would want for you, it's not what your people would want for you, and the counter-espionage unit has come, and they've tried, and you disassociated, and now you have made that a permanent factor of your life because you don't want to give up the benefit. And you keep telling yourself you're not associated throughout the whole thing. And that lie makes you comfortable. It's okay that I do that, because I'm not doing it because it's sin. I'm not doing. I'm not tearing with this evil spirit or having these thoughts or not feeling these ways because they're wrong. And it's just because I'm who I am. But I don't have anything to do with Satan. Even though those deeds are directly tied to the enemy, they are what the enemy does, they are not what you're supposed to be doing, and you doing them shows your association. You saying there is no association does not break your association, it just takes you to the next step of the process. And now you're looking for how you can benefit from the association. And James was talking about, pardon me, talking about the end of that process. If you go just to the left, you should be right there already if you stayed at James 1. And you go just to the left over into the book of Hebrews chapter 13 which is the last of the book of Hebrews right before the beginning of the book of James and you look uh, at verse 5 the writer of Hebrews who we don't know for sure who that was some people like to say it's Paul because Paul wrote so much in the New Testament but it probably wasn't Paul because most all the books that Paul wrote he claimed their writing and he does not claim Hebrews for sure Let your character be free from the love of money. Okay, so now we're talking about money. It's fairly specific, but it's wanting the benefits that money can give. Being content with what you have. For he himself said, I I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? And so the author of Hebrews has given us a position where we stand. When the enemy comes and I... I don't want to say to you that the enemy is money. Okay, Money is not an enemy. It's, an, it's a thing, like a chair or a car or a house. It's a thing. It's a, like a sidewalk. Right? It's not It's not an enemy. But we know that the pursuit of money or the desire to have what you don't already have, covetousness of any kind, leads men to do much evil. And so you can want that thing that you don't have and there's no problem. But when you begin to negotiate, you bring in that thing. You begin to negotiate with that thing that you don't have, whether it's the pursuit of money or whether it's sex or whether it's videos that you shouldn't be watching or video games that have explicitly show things that you don't, shouldn't see or people are talking to you about things that you shouldn't let go in your ears. Right? So if someone is gossiping to you and you're telling yourself over and over again, I'm not going to allow their gossip to impact me because I don't want it to be sin for them or for me. But you keep listening to the gossip. And maybe you diffuse 99% of it, but 1% of it begins to paint a picture in your head, and you've tarried with the enemy, you talked with the enemy, you invited the enemy, you associated with the enemy, and then you disassociated yourself, covering up your association, and now you're lying to protect the enemy because the fact is gossip is a sin. And when you respond to it, that makes it gossip. And so as soon as that picture is painted in your head, now you're doing it. And so the list goes on of all these behaviors that are actions of the enemy. And what he's saying is, no, behave as if, as if you've been solid ground to stand on. The writer of Hebrews is saying, no, we have been given more from the Lord than anything we could ever desire in the world. And so you have to learn not to partake in this process. So he's exactly telling us not to begin this progressive process, but to be okay. Godliness, and this is elsewhere, we may see it before we're done, godliness with contentment is much gain because you won't begin the process. Okay. So like a snowball effect, the next step is easier and easier and harder to prevent. I was getting ready to go out of town. And uh, I had a busy week leading up to when I was getting ready to go out of town. And I couldn't, I just couldn't get myself organized. I couldn't get my clothes packed. I couldn't get my toiletries ready. I couldn't get my books ready I had to take with me. I couldn't, I just had so many things and I couldn't get it ready. Then finally I got most everything ready. I thought I got everything ready, right? And I got it in the vehicle and I got in the vehicle and I'm driving out of town. And as soon as I'm driving out of town, now all of those things are pretty much ready. I'm going over the list in my head, the pattern that I had set for myself of what everything that needed to be ready, and guess what happened? Five minutes in the van, guess what I'm doing? Oh, I didn't get this. I didn't get that. Oh, I was going to bring this. And my list was several items long that I had not brought with me. Arrived at my destination without my toothbrush. Okay? And I I never my toothbrush. Right? So the point is... At the end of the process, after you've already enacted the process, the pattern, it's easy to see the pattern. So we have the example of Rahab. There is the pattern. There is the process. Don't start it. If you don't want to go out of town, then don't start packing. Don't buy tickets. Don't, don't gas up the car. Don't start the process. But if you do want to go out of town, then do all of those things that need to be done before you go out of town. And start them soon enough so there's time, so you're not rushing. And then give yourself an hour before you have to actually leave to go over the list and go, now that I've done everything, what are the seven things that I forgot? And then you'll knock them all off and you'll actually leave town and go where you have to go and have everything that you need because you worked the process, got to the end of the process, examined the process, saw where the process failed, and fixed it. That is if you want to live out the process, if you actually want to go out of town or if you actually want to tarry with the enemy. The second thing I want you to see in there then is that this process is social and antisocial. It has a lot to do with her associations. She fellowshiped with the enemies and she broke fellowship with the king and the king's allies, which they may have said that she was just the day before, right? So she fellowshiped with the enemy and broke fellowship with those who she had previously fellowshiped with. Look at uh, the book of Galatians in chapter 5. If you want to go there. Galatians chapter 5. Now, the, Galatians chapter 5 is all about this. It's about choosing to fellowship with the spirit over choosing to fellowship with the flesh. So spirit versus flesh, and flesh is another term for sinful nature. So our bodies want what we shouldn't have sometimes, and we choose the spirit over that. But in 5 16 he says but i say walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh for they these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please but if you are led by the spirit you are not under the law and so on what he's saying is there is a choice to be made with whom you will fellowship when you're in the church building, when you're out doing ministry, when you're with your family, we went to the park. We went to the park in a fairly large group. In our group with those who want to play on the playground and those who want to play Frisbee golf. As soon as we got to the park, we had a little negotiation about who was going to hang out and make sure that those who played on the playground stayed safe. And they all went to the playground. And Everybody want to play Frisbee golf? went to play frisbee golf. And afterwards, played frisbee golf for a while and some of the people who were playing frisbee golf stopped and they went to the playground and replaced the people who wanted to play frisbee golf who were at the playground and they came over, played frisbee golf. And don't kid yourself, there were 500 yards between those who were playing frisbee golf and the park. And it was my sons and my grandsons. It was my daughters. It was my wife And when we were 500 yards apart, we knew we would come back together again, but while we were 500 yards apart, we had no fellowship. Fellowship is about being together. The power of fellowship is seen when you help somebody who's going through something that you've never gone through. And we all go through things that no one else has ever gone through because you're a unique person. So when you've lost a close loved one and someone says, I know how you feel, you say, no, you don't. And you know that that's true. They don't know how you feel, right? However, if they just come and be with you, just hang out. Talk about how the chicken tastes or what the flowers look like or what the weather's going to be like, just so you've got something going on. The power of that fellowship is significant. No, they don't know how you feel. And they shouldn't say that they do because that would be a mistake, Right? Because even if they also have lost a very close loved one, they may know some components of how you feel, but they cannot know how you feel because they are not you. right? But the power of fellowship is just being together as we experience life. And this was meant for us to have with God, and it was meant for us to have with others who have it with God. It was not meant for us to have it with others who do not have it with God. Jesus said, Don't think that I have come to bring peace on the earth but a sword. So be aware, when you fellowship, I'm not just talking about being in the same room with, but when you share yourself and your personage, your experiences, your emotions, when you spend time with people who do not know God, that fellowship is with an enemy of God. And if that fellowship develops into a friendship, and they are not of God, they do not love the Lord, they do not know the Lord, if that fellowship develops into a friendship, then it falls under those verses where it says... Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Now, does that mean you cannot have a friend? No, you have to have friends. You have to be in the world. You have to have connections. But when you are with your friends, what do you share with them? Not you. Because you can't save them. You can't help them. And truth is, if you were some kind of blessing to them and and you don't talk about Jesus, actually, you're actually moving them further from God. Because they're finding the fellowship in you that they're supposed to be finding in God. So when you spend time with your non-Christian friends, they have to know that you're about Jesus, they have to hear Jesus from you, they have to hear Bible from you, or otherwise, you're actually starting this process. You're talking with the enemy, inviting the enemy into your life, associating with them secretly because you're not clear about which side you're on, and then if your friends would say to you, well, do you love the Lord? you say, yes, I do. You hang out with so-and-so, yes, I do. How does that go exactly? And you would say to them, well, I'm living for Jesus the whole time. I'm hoping to bring them to the Lord. Disassociating yourself with the enemy aspect and trying to verbally associate yourself with Christ. But the truth is you've never told them about Jesus. You don't want anything to do with Jesus when you're around them. Because you're talking with the enemy. You've invited the enemy in. You've disassociated yourself. You've covered them up. And you've lied to protect them. One of the chief lies we tell is that They don't want anything to do with Jesus. We say, they don't want anything to do with Jesus. So if I keep bringing it up, I'm going to lose them as a friend. Well, if that were true, then they're not your friend now. That's the reality. If you bring up what the most important thing to you is in this lifetime, and you bring it up regularly, and they say, if you keep talking about that, I'm never going to talk to you again, they're not your friend. They never were. doesn't mean they have to come to Jesus to be your friend. By the way, the Bible doesn't say much about them being your friend at all. It says how you can be their friend. And how can you be their friend if you just let them go to hell? So the point is, it's progressive, and it's social. And it's antisocial. So at times you have to disassociate, actually, not just say you are, but actually disassociate yourself from beings, and even sometimes people, who are working for the enemy. Who are working in the enemy. Who are themselves in some ways the enemy. And that could be family. It could be your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, your son. I have had to have a conversation with my mother before she was saved. I said, if you talk to me about that, we will not talk. A number of times. We've had to, we, we still struggle to this day because she every year, when I haven't seen her for a while. Struggles with a certain thing that she does, and she tells us she doesn't do that anymore, and yet she doesn't. So we struggle with that. And I want to go to her and I want to, and I haven't, I want to go to her and say, if you if you're gonna do that, then we can't talk. So you have to stop doing that. But I haven't done that. Because I, I don't want to disassociate with her because she's my mother, but at the same time, I'm not she knows I don't accept the behavior. Because I tell her that. Which is why she keeps coming back and saying it's not happening anymore. It is a social thing. And it was meant to be social between us and God and us and others who are social with God. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6 then. And We're nearing the end, so we're doing good on time, pace, and all that good jazz. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'm going to read 11 verses from here, and I'm not going to break them all down for you, but I think you can plainly see what they're saying. 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6 beginning in verse 6. But godliness actually is a mean of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into this world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang." But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness. I'm going to stop there for one second. I want you to see these two things in counterpoint. Verse 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. And then he says, regarding the desires for money and you know, the things of this life, he says, but flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. You see what he's setting up there? It's, a, it's point and counterpoint. You're okay and you're better than okay if you're okay where you are in Christ. But if you go after and want the things that the world has, you will not feel okay. Not only that, but you'll begin this process of what we're talking about. Instead of that, flee from those things. When things come into your life that represent the enemy, when the social media or the video or the language or the topic or the whatever, the movie... You can pay twelve dollars to go to see a movie. In the middle of the movie, there's something in there, and you have every reason to believe that it's going to be in there. You should walk out. Years ago, years and years ago, before my parents were ever saved, they went out. And go, they picked a movie to go see, and they didn't realize what it was. But it was Airplane. And you know what movie? You know the movie Airplane? Okay, which is I've never personally seen it. It's rated R has nudity and language in it. Okay, and they paid. I was back in the day. Seven bucks, I think, a piece to go see this movie. They bought popcorn and snacks and whatever. And 40 minutes into the movie, my mom said, we're out of here. And they got up and they walked out. They did not get a refund. They didn't try to get a refund. They just walked out. Would you do that? Would you do that if you were watching a movie in the theater that you thought was going to be perfectly good and in the middle of it, doctrinal messages that go contrary to the truth of Christ were being shown? Or would, you say, or would you just say, well, I know that's not true, so it's okay. Is that not step three of this process? And when we say, it's take the enemy, invite you you took in the enemy, you went, you went to the movie, there you are. You paid to be there, for crying out loud. You invited the enemy in, you're watching a movie that has these messages, you invited them in, and now you're disassociating with it. Unless you get up in the audience and say, hey, I just want everybody to know, just right now, I don't agree with what was just said right there and I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I just want you to know, I know I'm interrupting your movie, I'm ticking you off, whatever, I might get kicked out of here, but is anybody going to do that? No. So you want to stop the process, you know the process now, you want to stop the process, you get up and walk out. So that you don't continue to take in stuff that teaches against Christ. But that's not what we do. We just glance it over. And we say, well, I don't actually believe that, so I'm okay. But you're listening to it, you're supporting it financially for crying out loud. Alright. It's social and it's antisocial. The rest of this real quick says, but flee from these things you man of God and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life which to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That applies to pretty much all of us. I charge you in the presence of God who lives, who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign the King of kings and Lord of lords who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. I said in a sermon about three or four weeks ago that if our loved ones look down on us, they're in the presence of Christ and they now look down on us in the way that we live, they would be disgusted. They would be saddened. And so that's why I believe in heaven. They're not watching us. Because that would be heartbreaking to them to see what we're doing as they are worshiping and enjoying their eternal life. But is it scriptural? Can I back it up 100%? No. But you ask yourself, those who love the Lord who went on before you, if they were watching you when you're alone or just with a friend, when you're parked in front of your TV or watching a movie or on social media, how would they feel in the presence of Christ to look down on what we do? Are you in this process? Because if you are, and you've taken the enemy into your life, if you're inviting the enemy into your personal circle, you're associating secretly with them, covering up your association with them, and lying to protect them. You may fool us. You could fool us for an entire lifetime. But the dead who have risen in Christ, and Christ himself and God, you cannot fool. And you can lie and say that watching that, seeing that, being part of that, isn't hurting you. And the truth is, it may not even hurt you all that much in the short term, but it's part of the process. And you're betraying your king, and you're betraying your people. Okay, there's one last thing. And that is that I w- we cannot miss that Rahab, the harlot, the liar, and the betrayer. Anybody differ with any of those titles? She's a harlot, a prostitute. She's a liar, clearly lied multiple times in here a betrayer of her king and her country right that she is vindicated by this story is that not crazy by these choices betraying her, false, her king who would eventually be defeated completely by the Israelites by betraying the people of Jericho by lying to the counter espionage unit she is actually vindicated now that doesn't mean that you should do that regularly in life right? to be vindicated it's not going to work that way She is vindicated by a certain fact. First of all, you notice that her motivation is spoken of in the New Testament. And I'll show you that. Her side was publicly known. She chose God's people's side. Her secret is no secret now. We're reading it today. It's no secret. Everybody knows that wants to. The story of Rahab, right? This is a redemption story. She was a lying betraying harlot who made good when she chose the right side. She made good when she chose the right side. Go to James chapter 2. These are coming up on our last verses. We've got about three left. James chapter 2. Back there where we were in James. I'm going to read 24 through 26. James chapter 2, 24 through 26 says, And in the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by her works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way for just as the body without the spirit is dead so also faith without works is dead See, she was vindicated and justified by her works which she did because she believed in God and she believed in God's people and she believed in what God was doing and she betrayed her former king and she betrayed her former people back to Hebrews chapter 11 Go to the left about probably four pages or so. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31 says this. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And there's her motivation. She did what she did in faith. And I submit to you, you cannot invite in Satan, evil spirits, sinful behavior, or those who would encourage sinful behavior in your life in faith. Because if you believed in God, you know God will correct you. If you believed in God, you know you will stand before Him one day and answer for the choices that you made, big and small. And I submit to you that the small choices that you think are small, like disassociating yourself with something you're listening to or watching in this lifetime and saying it's not causing any problem for me, it's even permissible in the gospel that I can do that. While you do that, that you take that small thing and you make it a big thing before the Lord because he died for you so that you don't have to do it and you choose to do it anyway. And that makes it a really big thing. And she did what she did out of faith. And we are called to do what we are called to do out of faith. And you cannot tarry with the enemy and invite the enemy in and associate secretly with the enemy and cover up your association with the enemy and lie to protect the enemy. You cannot do those things in faith. Except the first time. When the enemy is Satan himself, is your king. When Satan is your king. And you choose to invite in Christians. And you choose to invite in Christ. And you choose to invite in the Holy Spirit. See how this process, there is a time for it. And she was vindicated because she invited in God's people and God's work and God's purposes. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, which we won't go to read about, I'll just tell you, it tells us that Rahab was an ancestor of Jesus. And you know that a little bit later in life, after she was a harlot, she marries a man, a Jewish man. And she becomes the mother of Obed who is ultimately an ancestor of David and then later an ancestor of Jesus by abandoning Satan by abandoning evil works, by abandoning people doing evil works and pursuing after God who would be considered their enemy and God's people would be considered their enemy. And even at first secretly associating Josephus, right? Josephus secretly associated with Jesus. And then when, and when Jesus was crucified, he went and retrieved, he became out public and he retrieved Jesus' body and helped put him in the tomb. Joseph of Arama- Arimathea, there we go. Joseph of Arimathea, secretly. Nicodemus was a secret (coughs) disciple of Jesus, right? But he was a disciple of Jesus while he still served on the Sanhedrin. And there were people that were believing in Jesus, but they didn't want to come out because of the suffering that they would do, and I get that. But ultimately, they did come out. And we know their story. What I'm saying to you is she was a lying, betraying harlot. Well, I was never a harlot, but I was a lot like a harlot. I was definitely a betrayer and a liar. I was a little bit of thief. I was a lot lazy. I was a manipulator for sure. I was self-centered and egocentric. And one day I decided to follow this pattern. I talked to the one who was the enemy of everything I ever did. Jesus. And I invited that enemy into my life. I first associated with him secretly. I was standing in the pew and I said... I can't go, I've got to talk to my wife first about this decision. And then I didn't. The next weekend I said the same thing again. And then I associated with him openly. Because Jesus doesn't want you to lie about him. He wants you to be honest. So the pattern is the same right up to the moment in which you stand up. Three things you were to see. Number one, it's a progressive pattern. It happens step by step. So if that occurs here, we talk to Jesus and we invite Jesus in and we associate with Him. And then we stop the pattern or we change the pattern to be we openly associate with Jesus. And we don't lie to protect Jesus. We live for Jesus. also you were to see that as a social and an antisocial pattern, we are you are, I am hereby giving you the permission to be rude to evil spirits. Be rude to Satan himself. Be a little bit rude, not too much, but a little bit rude to human beings who come into your life and try to lead you to do what's wrong. Man, if you're in your living room and a man or a woman comes in your house and starts using a bunch of foul language, you should say, hey, We don't talk like that here. Is that rude? Or is it just right? It's your house. Now, if you're out at the docks, right, or whatever, and there's a sailor there, and you walk up out of the blue and say, hey, you shouldn't talk like that, that's wrong. Don't do that. You might walk up, engage them in conversation, try to lead them to Christ. They may even be a follower of Christ and they're tarrying with the enemy. They've invited the enemy in. They've associated with the enemy. They're covering up their association with the enemy, with their Christian friends. They say, it's okay to talk like that. It's really not a problem. That's not unbiblical. Alright. So you can be on the wrong side or you can choose to be on the right side. You can surprise Satan by choosing Jesus. Your defection will do more for the advancement of the kingdom of God in you and in your family and in your connections and in the world than if you continue to play around with the enemy. Defect and be 100% and completely in love with Jesus. Also, you may have already defected, if you will, to the good side But now, our tarrying, beginning the steps, and who knows how far into the process we are. I think some of us, me, maybe at times, I've been there. We go all the way. We go right up to doing what we know God doesn't want us to do. And then we'll say, well, but Jesus forgives it. Jesus paid for all sin. And what we're really supposed to do is confess it, that he may cleanse us and purify us. One final illustration, and we're done. There was a pastor who sent a package to a prison. A man in jail, been there for a while, administered to him a little bit or whatever, and he sent him a care package. (coughs) The care package came back to the pastor, sent to the prison, addressed to an inmate, and came back, unopened. Written on the package was, he escaped. No forwarding address. That's the way it's supposed to be when the enemy comes and promises to deliver a little something into your life. When the enemy comes and promises to deliver a little something into your life, he should find you escaped from his tender ministries. He should find you escaped from listening to anything that he would have to say. He should find you standing on solid ground and not interested in all. It, this is why the, there's a problem in the world with all kinds of people who think that they should get all kinds of stuff without actually working for it or without doing it in a biblical way. Because there is somebody out there who will offer you something for free and he's not doing it in love. In Romans 13:14 it says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision. In other words, make no way of going back No pattern. Do not enact that pattern. Do not find that way. Do not do what you have done in the past. Make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. You've got to cut the cords. You've got to put it away. This is how you betray your king and your people. Talk with the enemy. Invite the enemy into your life. Associate secretly with the enemy. Cover up your association with the enemy and ultimately lie to protect the enemy, which our motivation there usually is not to lose the free things, the enjoyment, or whatever he's offered. Don't do it. Build your life in Christ away from all of that so that you can identify it when it comes.
0: For listening to all or a portion of this full length New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church worship service. New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church is located in East Toledo at 255 Hefner Street, 43605. If you'd like to reach out to the church, our phone number is 419 469 8808. Our website is newheightsfellowshipchurch.org where you can find lots more information about the church, its connections, and and how to give. You may you can mail uh, information to the church at the address two five five Hefner four three six zero five. You can also give to the ministry in some way if you wish by texting G I V E G I V E to four one nine four one nine zero zero nine five. If you'd simply like more information and updates about the ministry you may text I-N-F-O to that same phone number, 419-419-0095. If you'd like to partner with the ministry in some way other than financial, you may text P-A-R-T-N-E-R, the word partner, to 419-419-0095.